and welcome to Reliving My Youth. My name is Noel Fogelman. Chances are you have heard my guest's voice, but just didn't know her name. Well, her name is Tessa Niles. She's one of the most accomplished background and session singers out there. She's worked with some amazing artists like Eric Clapton, David Bowie, Duran Duran, Tears for Fears, Robbie Williams, name a few. And this is the 35th anniversary of Live Aid. And she was part of David Bowie's band on that magical day. She tells a couple great stories. About five years ago, she wrote a book called Backtrack, which chronicles her career. It's a fantastic book. It's anywhere you can find it. I recommend the audio version because she has such a lovely voice. Uh, we did this interview a few months ago, so we talked about Rupert Hine before his passing, the legendary producer. Tessa is such a lovely lady. I could have talked with her for a couple more hours because we didn't get to half the artists she worked with. Hopefully someday I will. Hope you enjoy my conversation with her. What was like the inspiration for you like to write the book? And like, was that something that you thought about for a while before actually putting pen to paper? Yeah, well, it, to be honest with you, it was the, the topic of conversation that came up most in my life, really. Right. Oh, you've worked with so many artists. You should write a book. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not a writer. I'm a singer. Right. So I kind of. But it, it became that thing where if I went to a dinner party and, uh, you know, somebody found out what I did, I suddenly became the center of attention. Right. And in a way, that was very flattering and very nice. I didn't always like it because, you know, you don't always want to talk about yourself. But okay. um, but I realized that there was a genuine interest. And um, when I moved to South Africa in 2007, I wasn't working, really. I was supporting, I was bringing up the kids and supporting my husband's ventures. Um, I decided it was a great time to look back. You know, it was the perfect time, really, to kind of reassess, have a little look back. And also, I mean, essentially, I wrote it for my kids, yeah. not thinking that it would do anywhere near as well as it's done. So that was just a bonus. So that was really how it came about. Right. Have have your kids been like very interested in your career, like, you know, asking a lot of questions about certain artists and just about like your time in the business? Yeah, there was a time when they were younger, sort of, I'd say from about eight to about 14, where they were really nonplussed about the whole thing. It was like, yeah, yeah, it's mom's job. You know, yeah, she works with rock stars. Yeah. <laughs> Next, you know, where's my video game? Yeah. Um, right. So, uh, so yeah, but, uh, but as they, as they got older, they got more and more interested. And in fact, my one daughter who's downstairs, she's in the floor below me now. She's, um, she's studying musical theater. Okay. And so she's not exactly following in mom's footsteps. I mean, she's very accomplished. Um, but, um, but yeah, so she's, you know, always had an interest and there's always been music around, you know, it's always been, a shed load of music from me and my and my husband. So yeah, it was inevitable that one of them was gonna. Yeah, even before you you know started with the idea of the book and people you know sat down at dinner with you and talking about your career. What was like the one question you got the most? <laughs> oh, without doubt, who was probably probably on equal footing? Who was the nicest person you worked with, and who was the worst? Okay. Just yeah. yeah. Did classic, you feel- classic kind of. And, yeah. and the thing is, it's so difficult to really because one's career is kind of multifaceted and, and it's not just about liking someone or loving someone or not liking something. You know, it, it's very nuanced in that way. Yeah. And like, as you met, it's, it's also, you know, a business 
association. So they're nice, they're mean, doesn't matter, you're there to do a job. Yes. So thank you. Thank you, right. no. You get it, you get it. Right. Yeah, because you know, in the book Backtrack, which everyone check out, it's on Amazon, Kindle, Audible, it's it's everywhere. Um, you really didn't kind of it wasn't like, you know, a tell all, you know, kind to like out people. It was just your experiences working with certain people and you know, it was it was it was really a good listen. And I said before the interview, you really should have a, a career in, you know, recording <laughs> audio books. It's fantastic. <laughs> That's very kind of you. Sure. But go, kind of going way back, like what like was there one particular moment you realized that this was something you wanted to do in your life? Well, session singing was never really the thing. I didn't even know it existed when I was growing up. I mean, I used to avidly look at the back of people's albums and like we all did, you know, oh, you know, so-and-so played on that. And then you'd see that they played on something else. And so I loved that whole thing about seeing, uh, you know, which which artists had played and played the supporting role. Um, but as as for becoming a session singer, no, I just wanted to sing. I just right. wanted to be a singer. I had no idea where it was going to take me. And in those days, listeners might find this a little hard if they're uh, below a certain age. There was no Internet. Right. There was no Google. How do I be, become a singer? How do I, You just kind of found your way. It's extraordinary, really, that we all did. Um, you know, we, we survived without the Internet. And, uh, yeah, I just... I think I was always interested in music. My brother and I sang a lot of harmonies together, which I, I mentioned quite a bit early on in the book and uh, loved it. And he had a great school friend who had a small recording studio, very sort of basic recording studio. But the minute I got in there and started to sing and layer up harmonies and hear how my voice could sound multi-tracked, I was kind of in love. That was it. I didn't. I didn't really analyze it. I didn't really know why I was in love with it, but I loved because it, it, it felt to me as if I could potentially recreate some of the sounds of my favorite artists, you know, possibly, you know, layer up vocals like the Carpenters or like Stevie Wonder. And, and it just opened up a whole world to me. And then, of course, at that point, schoolwork became Sia, you know, it was, it was, <laughs> I was only interested in singing, didn't know how to get into it, but um, music became my everything and uh, left school very young, really left school at 16, much to my parents' dismay in a way, but they were, they were still very supportive. But, you know, they were worried because I wouldn't have had anything to fall back on. Um, and, and that was it, really. I, I began the journey of attempting to get into the music industry. How, how difficult was that, like, attempt to actually break through in the business? You know, it just seems, now I look back at it, maybe I'm looking back a little bit with rose-colored glasses, but it did seem quite organic at the time. You know, I met people, I was introduced to people who knew people, who introduced me to other people. It just seemed to be very word of mouth. Um, I started off singing in cabaret groups. So kind of working in hotels and clubs and bars like so many of us uh, started out doing. Um, And then I had a very uh, auspicious meeting with my now um, ex-husband, a gentleman called Richard Niles, who was very much on the ladder of success with his career. And so he helped me enormously, enormously, uh, just introduced me to the right people. 
booked me on a few things. But of course, I had to prove myself over and above being yeah. producer or the arranger's girlfriend. Right. Because, you know, that wasn't going to last. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I had to do a good job. And I realized then that session singing, well, I was good at it. You know, I could do it. I could I could layer up vocals. I could work with very little instruction. You know, it's like, can you put a chorus on this for us? And I was like, yeah, OK. You know, and so I could I could do that. Um, but I was still at the same time, I was still going for a solo career because I thought that's kind of what you did. Right. So I did that for a while, had a few attempts. Um, but it didn't really happen for whatever reason. I, I And looking back on it now, I think I perhaps didn't have that singular drive that you need to be an artist or need to be you know, successful in any career. You need to have that absolute singular drive that kind of push everybody else out of the way almost um, and do that. So when that wasn't transpiring, when it wasn't really happening, the solo career, I was in tandem getting more and more session work. And I just thought, you know what? I'm a team player. This is what I do best. And so that work started to take over and I started to 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 build and make a name for myself. Right. And one of the names in the book that you mentioned a lot that had kind of a big influence in your career was producer Trevor Horn. And everyone from the 80s knows Trevor Horn, you know, worked and produced so many different artists. You know, um, what, what was like the experience working with him? And have you worked with him, you know, in the past like 15, 20 years or anything like that? Yeah, the, my first introduction to Trevor was I think I'd heard of him before, but I didn't really know him. And in about 19, is it 81, something like that, 82, I had a call from an engineer saying, can you get down to the studio? Um, and I showed up and there were these four kind of gangly, weird looking guys from Sheffield, which is in the Midlands, in like the steel uh, area yeah. of the UK. And... Um, and I was introduced to Trevor Horn, who was producing these four guys. And these four guys turned out to be ABC. And so that was my first big break, if you like. It was the first time I'd ever worked for a really big producer. Although, to be fair, I think Trevor's career was still, he was known for the buggles. Right. Um, but he, he hadn't really made his mark as a producer yet. And I think that ABC album kind of cemented that for him. So, um for all of us working on that particular project, it became a game changer. Um, right. we, we all did really, really well on it. And it was number one across the world. So thanks, Trevor. Yeah. And in the part, and I, uh, most recently, I worked on uh, an artist called Robbie Williams, who's not hugely well known in the US. Right. But he's massive in other parts of the world, in Europe and, and Australia and South America. He's he's huge. So, yeah, I, I did some work with Trevor on that. Right. Now, you brought up Robbie, who you worked with for, for you know, a while and seemed like a great guy in the book and everything like that. I, I, I love, love the... Very much yeah, fun. Yeah, yeah. The, ice skating, the ice skating story I really enjoyed <laughs> in the book. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. But um, why do you think, like, because, you know, he was, you know, he had a nice career and he's still going, you know, in, in the States, but not as massive, you said, in, in, in Europe. Why do you think that was the case? It's really interesting, Noel. I've thought about that many times because actually I, I did go to the States with Robbie right. and, and uh, as part of the band to try and break America. I think largely they didn't really get him. He didn't 
have a massive following to begin with because over here he'd been in a band called Take That. Right. Since I think he was 16 years old or something. So uh, we on this side of the pond had had this massive history with Robbie coming up through this right. boy band thing, a little bit like a Justin Timberlake kind of situation. Of course. And then when he um, emerged as a solo artist, we all had this kind of great fondness and history for him, whereas whereas the U.S. didn't, perhaps. And maybe that's why he didn't he didn't take. Yeah, no, that's a great point, because we had our own, like you mentioned, Justin Timberlake, we had our own boy bands here. So I guess they were, I guess they're oversaturated with boy bands. So I guess, you know, why have another, you know. Exactly. exactly. And, yeah. he, and he's really quirky too, Robbie. He's very kind of, he can be irreverent. He can be a little risque. He can be a little, little bit bonkers. And I, I'm not sure that, you know, if you hadn't had that history with him before, that it, that it was going to kind of go over. Right. And you mentioned, you know, ABC and the Lexicon kind of Love album, which, which was fantastic. Um, and there were kind of four gangly guys and that. As I guess the 80s moved on, you would think of Martin Fry, Lee Tinker, maybe see really cool, the cool suits and everything like that. Did you see kind of that transformation like in him? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I always remember Trevor talking about Martin Fry as one of the greatest lyricists he'd ever heard in pop because he wasn't strictly writing about love all the time. And he just had it. He was very poetic. And of course, those lyrics and that music coupled with Trevor's use of strings, orchestras, you know, was quite radical. It hadn't really been done before. So it just it just hit at that right time. Yeah. Right. And then that song the um off of Let's Kind of Love, Dates Them. Great song. Then you ended up working with them later on on uh, the album with, with uh, the single When Smokey Sings, which great song. My mother's favorite artist is Smokey Robinson. Um, but they didn't include you in the video, though. I guess that was kind of an issue for certain like background singers back then. Yeah, it was. And it became more and more so because um, it was about the lessening of the control of the unions here. At the, at the same time, it was kind of a lot of unions were losing power here and uh, the musicians union just couldn't fight it. So what was happening? And I mean, some say, look, the artists should be able to use whoever they want visually. Yeah. Um, and I think now I, I kind of agree with that. At the time, I think we were all very miffed that this was 
a loss of income and why weren't they using it? So, you know, because we had other people mining. It meant that other people were miming to our voices, which we thought was kind of unfair. Right. So they were getting the kudos um, for for my work, if you like. And so it, it rubbed, definitely rubbed the wrong way. I did try and fight it. But by that time, the unions just kind of didn't have enough power. So, um, yeah, it went by the by. And now it's pretty much the norm. Right. Yeah. And because, you know, back then, obviously, videos are more prevalent than they are now, you know, MTV and um, right. VH1 over here. But um, was that was that a, the band's choice? Was that the record label's choice? The, the record? Whose ultimate decision was that? I'm pretty sure it was the band's. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They would have possibly preferred a certain look. Um, you know, they wanted a certain image. They probably wanted to use models and, right. you know. Yeah. It was really a kind of an, art, an artistic direction they were going in. It just so happened that it kind of meant that, you know, we had to shout a bit louder, excuse me, that's me. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess that would make you know, sense and say like a Robert Palmer video where the models in the background not really doing anything, but like, you know, you're performing, you know, vocals and, you know, it kind of takes a little bit away from the, the song, I think. It does. Did you think at the time, though, that people – thought that they'd sung on that? Do you, do you, or do you think people got the fact that it was just done for visual purposes? I would probably say it was probably split. Mm. I, I would think that, you know, if they, if they mimed it, you know, pretty pretty well, they would think that it was them doing it, you know. Yeah. But yeah. otherwise, you know, people are like, I, I know who, who sings this. I'm a fan of the band. So I, I would know. But, you know, it's probably, I would say, split down the middle. Yeah, 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 absolutely. It was, it was a strange time, but there was so much work going on. You almost didn't have time to think about it too much because there was just so much going on. And and I get it now. I I, I do get it. I do understand. I still feel for the artists who are not credited, you know. No, of course. uh, Which still happens, unfortunately, today. And you mentioned, like, just now, you, you had so much, you know, work, you know, during that time. Was there ever an artist that you had to turn down because you had so much work? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, yes, I think there were quite a few. I, I'm trying to think. I, I don't think anybody major. I managed to kind of work it, yeah. thankfully, that I um, – my work was sort of split between doing um, – touring work so so going on tour with bands and then coming back and doing sessions and jingles so I used to do quite a lot of jingles as well um so it was kind of 50 50 at one point until I really started working with Clapton and then the touring became became pretty much kind of most of the year yeah we'll get to Eric in a little bit (laughs) but uh, then you worked with probably the biggest bands during that time the police also, another one of my my favorites in the story in the book was yeah. <laughs> was, We're not worthy. We're not worthy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, luckily, they re, they re, re, uh, reunited about 15 years ago. I was able to see that tour because oh, did you see that? I, I saw that one. Oh, it was thankfully I saw kind of I started Madison Square Garden, so I was, at least it was a few shows after it started because I guess it was kind of a rough start for them. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I'm, I think they were still on speaking terms at that point, but. <laughs> but only just, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But like, what was like that experience? You mentioned in the book about meeting Sting for the first time and, you know, Andy and Bernard. So what was that story? Like? Or Stuart, I should say, that experience like? It was bonkers, really. I mean, it, it was nuts in that I was this kid who was really, 
Um, actually, I was kind of the same age that my daughters are now. So to about, around about 22, I just started working with a, a jazz funk band who were very well known here called Morrissey Mullen, which were two guys, Dick Morrissey and Jim Mullen. And um, I was ecstatic. We were doing pub gigs and, you know, to 150 people three times a week. And, and I was coining it in. You know, I just thought I was doing so well. Didn't need to go to the bank anymore. I was just making cash from all of these gigs. And I was riding high. I thought I thought life was extremely good. And, and I was kind of learning on the job and especially learning how to sing live because I'd done a bit of studio work before that. But this was really a live thing. And then I got a call one day from um, a lady called Marsha Hunt. And Marsha, uh, for anybody that remembers, um, was the poster girl for Hair, the musical in the 1960s. They used her big afro and she was also had a relationship with Mick Jagger. and They had a child together and she knew my then husband at the time, Richard Niles. So she called Richard and said, uh, do you think Tessa can get down to a rehearsal studio uh, like by four o'clock this afternoon? And uh, and of course, my husband said, well, yeah, absolutely. So I kind of I did, had no idea who I was going down to meet. But this was quite a big thing. And obviously coming from Marsha, it was obviously quite legit. And uh, so I, I went down and. Um, as I stood outside the main studio door, which was kind of sealed, as, as you can imagine, those kind of rehearsal studios are pretty well kind of like steel doors and lots of soundproofing. I heard this kind of jangling of these final chords of a song. There was nobody there to meet me. So I was just kind of standing there thinking, oh, my God, what do I do? Um, and I pulled open the door and it was like the last chord of Roxanne or something like that. And I just saw Sting, Stuart and Andy in the room and I went, you know, I nearly fainted. I was like, okay, girl, breathe, you know, keep it together, hold it together, love. (laughs) And there they were, you know, and then I had to speak to them. Yeah. (laughs) And not make a complete fool of myself. Right. Um, Anyway, it was, it turned out that the tour was going to happen in about a week's time. And Sting had, was worried about his voice. He was worried about losing his voice on tour because it was a really big tour. It was the Synchronicity Tour. And at the time, I had no idea it was going to be their last tour. But they were riding high. They were number one in the charts with Every Breath You Take. And this was going to be a massive tour. And so they, yeah, I I sort of introduced myself to the three of them. Very uncomfortably. I was, you know, really awkward thing. There was no one there to introduce me. And I kind of just had to introduce myself. And then from that, Sting said, uh, well, look, can you come to my house and just have a little bit of a sing? I think I, I don't know whether it was like tomorrow or the next day or whatever. And I was like, yeah, 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 absolutely. Absolutely. So that's what happened. So then I went up to Sting's house and uh, there was a little story attached to um, him playing every breath for me on the piano. And the two other singers that were there is, uh, also. Shall I shall I tell that story? Oh, I, I don't... <laughs> well yeah so we were standing around the piano in Sting's very lovely home in uh, North London and um, yeah so this was really an audition I mean it wasn't called an audition but to all intents and purposes it was an audition so um, at some point Sting was kind of playing every breath and we were working out the vocals and singing along and then at some point 
for some reason, I decided I needed to chirp in with a comment. Mm. And I said, oh, love this. It's it's so great. You know, it just reminds me of that kind of country music kind of voicing thing going on in the background. And Sting just stopped playing. And there was like dead silence. Mm. And I thought, shit. Mm. I I better get my coat. You know, this is like, I've, I've really said the wrong thing. He really doesn't like what I've said. He doesn't like ah, the reference to country music. And I just, oh, my poor colleagues, you know, who were standing there with me probably wished they'd been underneath the piano at this point. Um, and then the silence broke and Sting just threw back his head and just howled with laughter. And he said, oh, don't mind me, pet. He said, he said, come on, pack your bags. We're going on tour. So I was like, and that was it. And then five days later, we were on tour. And it was my first tour. So it was baptism by fire. Wow. Were, were you? Was that your first trip to America as well? No, I'd actually been to America a few times. Well, my first husband was American. Okay. And um, I had also been on holiday to the States as a kid. Oh. We had a big family holiday sure. uh, when I was about 12 and yeah. uh, we went to California. So, yeah, so I'd been a couple of times. Been a few okay. times yeah. But this, nothing like this. Uh, this was like, yeah. Ooh. Right. But it was, it seemed like it was uh, difficult, right? Performing all, all the songs because he wanted a certain way. And... Yeah. Sting sings in a particular way. Uh, he doesn't use a lot of vibrato when he sings. And if you think about songs like Roxanne, you don't have to put on the red light. It was all very much at the top of his register, full tilt. There was no sort of softness there. It was all very, very strong singing, which was probably one of the reasons he wanted some backup singers so that he didn't have to push quite as hard as he normally did or that he could potentially lay back sometimes. Um, so apart from the fact that we had to learn almost the entire police catalog in about five days, which was, which was not easy because um, we didn't know what songs they were actually going to choose until we arrived in the States and, and started to, to rehearse properly. So, yeah, we had to learn a ton of songs. And then we had to sing without vibrato, which is definitely a difficult skill. I wouldn't recommend it. The singers use vibrato very often to keep their voices soft and flexible and um, it helps them not strain. So singing. So our directive from Sting was no, no vibrato and sing kind of like Sting. Well, was that the first time you had to perform with vibrato? Wow. Yeah, I've never heard of it before. I'd, yeah. I've done it since. A lot, a lot of artists actually either don't like it or they don't use it themselves. Um, so, yeah, I've done it, done it many times. But that was the first. And live, it's particularly difficult because you're singing so hard. At least in the studio, you can take a break. between right. songs. <laughs> but, Yeah. Uh, Otherwise, you have like 10 seconds <laughs> between songs. Yeah. yeah. What was the most difficult song to perform on the tour? Actually, synchronicity was quite hard to sing live. Um, there's a video of it. If you go onto YouTube, there's a video of the synchronicity tour. Right. Uh, and yeah, that one, because it was the opening song as well, so there was no nice lead into it. It was like, boom. Yeah. <laughs> so did that was he, Right. On that tour, did, did they kind of keep the set list, list the same to make it, or did they change it up for a show? No, it was pretty much the same. I mean, oh. occasionally they would add things. Right. Um, 
And occasionally we'd all whine and moan about, oh, why don't you do to um, do, 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 da, da, da. Right. No, hate that song, not doing it. <laughs> there were certain songs he didn't want to do, but yeah. largely it was the same set. Yeah. Okay. All right. So yeah, keep you on your toes. So at least it was good that, you know, it's the same. Right. Yeah. Thank goodness. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But then, <laughs> yeah, a massive artist that actually had a, I guess, his comeback was T- Tina Turner the Private Dancer uh, album, and you performed back up on one of her biggest songs. What's left that to do with it? Yeah. How, so, how- I still have to pinch myself. Right. Honestly, no, I still pinch myself. If I'm shopping in the supermarket or, you know, in the car and it comes on, I'm like, oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. And I didn't do a lot of singing on it. It's not one of those tracks that's got kind of wall-to-wall chorus vocals like, big massive thing it's it's quite subtle just kind of sits underneath tina's voice there but wow i'm so grateful and so extraordinarily fortunate to have you know performed on that track and and others of tina's was she in the studio with you guys or did you just kind of lay down those tracks without her she wasn't there she she um i only met her i met her when we were recording uh, simply the best okay and she was like this, mm. like this energy field. She yeah. Just, you know, she was explosive, just as you would imagine her to be. Just had this incredible energy. So that was the only time I met her because very often I know that, you know, Noel and, and your, your listeners probably know as well. The tracks are put together separately, if you like. The musicians come in and they do their Sometimes things are recorded live, but very often it's the guitar player will go in and he'll play his parts down or they'll do the rhythm section first and then they'll get into overdubs. So I was always, um, there was one producer called Chris Kimsey who produced um, The Stones, who used to say that when I came in, he was very sweet, he'd say it was like sprinkling fairy dust <laughs> on the track because yeah. they'd be living with all the, you know, these tracks for weeks and weeks, if not months, and then... The, the female singers would come in and just kind of sprinkle their little harmony magic on right. the track. Yeah. But, um, why so, you... what's love got to do with it? Uh, Tina wasn't there. Oh, okay. The minute I heard it, I just, you know, it was just undeniable, this hypnotic kind of groove thing going on. And then, and then when the vocals were pil- pulled up, I was like, well, if this isn't a hit, I'll eat my hat. Right. Oh, it was. So you, <laughs> you didn't have to eat there. That was, that was a good one. Um, <laughs> Grace Jones would, you know, another, uh, you know, Slave to the Rhythm, you know, is a great album and performs, you know, background on that one as well. Did you meet her or is that also a similar situation? Yeah. Didn't, uh-huh. meet Didn't meet Grace. No, it's, it's kind of weird now I think about it. You know, our lives are so interlinked yeah. and yet we haven't met. So it's, it's, it's a bit strange in that way. But I was just listening to Slave to the Rhythm. Again, similar kind of thing. I'm certainly not all over it. Yeah. It's it's interesting how producers, you know, they really choose. You might do a ton of vocals when you're actually recording. Right. They might listen to it in the mix and just handpick a few spots, you know. And that's the magic that they create is knowing where to use it and where yeah. not to. Right. Exactly. Were there any particular producers that you didn't like working with before, I should say? There were – there was one time – and it would be wrong of me to mention any names, but there was one time where I didn't quite get what the producer was doing. I, he was just 
so leaving it to me to come up with everything. Mm. And it, it often worked like that. Um, there were kind of two different types of producers, some that knew exactly what they wanted. So they would give you full instruction and you just carried that out yes. with very little kind of creativity on your part. And I was more than happy to do that because the producer knew what he wanted. So, you know, I was fine with that, absolutely fine with that. But then you'd work with the producers who kind of were expecting you to come up. With, to do that work. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes that meant almost... Um, that you were writing aspects of it. Mm. Not that you got co-writer's credit, but, you know, that's <laughs> the nature of it. And um, and I was okay with that. I was okay with that. Okay. Well, one of the biggest uh, concerts still to date is Live Aid. And you know, just probably more in the limelight now with the Bohemian Rhapsody movie with, with uh, Queen yeah. and Freddie Mercury. That was the best part of that movie the last 20 minutes. Um, and you worked with David Bowie, who obviously is one of the best artists of all time, you know, um, and you were kind of contributed to the set list that you suggested you play Rebel Rebel. Was that your, was that your favorite song? It was my absolute favorite period um, of his music. And I, and I guess I must have been at school and my maiden name is Webb. And so <laughs> at school, I was... <laughs> Uh, yeah, I would, uh, the kids would call me Webble Webble. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know, it was, it was a, a particular favorite. Yeah. It, it had, and, uh, it was so funny because Bowie said to us in rehearsals, well, you know, what, what do you, what do you think? What do you think I should do? Like, you're asking us. Okay. Yeah. And so I immediately threw in Rebel Rebel and I, I probably threw in something else, but yeah. And, it, and he, he just, I, I like to think that I was responsible for him doing it. Yeah. <laughs> He's probably going to do it. Yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> like when you're on the stage and look out at Wembley Stadium and you see the sea of people, probably 70, 80,000. Was that just like a surreal moment for you guys? Totally surreal, Noel. I, I don't even really know how to fully describe it. Only that when I saw Bohemian Rhapsody, that opening section uh, of the movie where the curtains, you, you're kind of backstage with Queen and the curtains open and they walk out and you can see the whole of the Wembley Stadium crowd in front of you. When I saw that, it was such a flashback for me. I was like, oh, oh my word. This, this was my view. This is what I saw. And I was 22 years old. Um, it was nuts. It was absolutely bonkers um, to, to walk out and experience that. And really, none of us knew what a, a pivotal moment that was in music history and our own history, because Life Aid was watched by a third of humanity. Yeah. But who knew? Right. Did you watch it? I did, yeah. You're a little young. I was, I was 10 when yeah. I watched it, yeah. I was going to say, but you, do you have a memory of actually watching it? Um, I do, and I also bought, um, I think it's hard to find now, the box set of, of the whole concert. I, I still have that, and it was just great, because uh, I remember Phil Collins, he was one of my favorites back then, flying from yeah. uh, London to go to Philadelphia to perform, and like Howard Jones performed as well. And But yeah, just obviously Queen and David Bowie, and just like, but how much of the show, I know you were preparing for your set, were you able to kind of like peek and listen to quite a bit because we were there most of the day um, yeah. 
and so it was it was heaven you know it was we were hobnobbing with all the stars backstage and it but even even though we were all there for a united cause nobody knew the impact that it would have we really didn't you know we it, and, and now, you know, it's, it's gone down in history, I think, is probably one of the greatest concerts of all time. Um, how it came together was a miracle. So Bob Geldof and Harvey Goldsmith, you know, were, were literal uh, miracle workers. Um, and I think it, it, it defined that period of, of time of music as well, because those great artists all performed. You know, you had the Stones and you had Clapton. I didn't even know Clapton at that time. Right. <laughs> Yeah, and how much did, you know, did it like, you know, help your career? Cause you know, you're right to like, I guess the left of, you know, David Bowie during the whole set. So like how much of it did like, it, did it help your career? Oh, I think, I think it turned things, uh, from, I mean, I, I, I already had had some success. Um, right. but I think with that as a showcase and, and the wonderful thing about Bowie was that he, he wanted to feature his band. He was generous. He was not intimidated by anybody else. He was such a massive star himself that we all felt as a band that he just wanted to bring us with him. So, you know, there are bands that you work for that don't want to feature the side musicians that much. I mean, we've all seen bands where, you know, the singers are right up at the back with their light on them. couldn't have been more different with Bowie. He wanted that close quarters. He wanted to feature everybody. And he was just remarkably generous. He wanted to know what we were wearing, which was very unusual because most rock stars are, you know, yeah, wear a little black dress, you know, that was about the extent of it. (laughs) So it was, it was wonderful on all counts. And yeah, I, I, I think my, um, my stock went up hugely after that, despite the fact that he got my name wrong. Along vocals, Helena and Teresa Swift. Yes, he did. Teresa, right? <laughs> Teresa. Yeah. The other lady I was singing with was a lady called Helena Springs. Yeah. And when it came to the introductions at the end, which is yeah. after, was it after Heroes? Yeah. yeah. I think he introduces. Yeah. So if you go <laughs> go on to YouTube and check it out, he actually introduces me as Teresa Springs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Considered changing my name after that. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, who's this Teresa Springs? I want her on my album, you know? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But no, he was, oh, bless him, he was nervous. Of course. I mean, you know, 70,000 people in front of him and a billion of people watching, and of course. Right. Yeah. Did he even remember people's names? I mean, yeah. <laughs> but, um, slack. yeah, another like tremendous artist um, who I think should be in the Hall of Fame or Duran Duran. And it's it's a shame that they're not. Um, and you worked, you know, a bunch of albums with them. And the first one was Notorious, yeah. right? Yeah. Were they like an artist that maybe because you know they were back so big in the early '80s? You know, MTV helped their career. Was was that you know, an artist that you band that you were kind of like you know in awe of? Or oh, very much so. I loved the way, even though I didn't work with them when at the beginning of their careers. Um, I mean, who didn't love? Uh, in fact, we were, my daughters and I were just jamming to Rio the other day. And, uh, I was trying to tell, they'd never seen the video. And I said, Oh my God, you have to go and see the video because that's like a seminal piece of work, you know, that defined, you know, the, the MTV VH1 
um, era almost, that kind of very extravagant video. But I loved them. I loved them. I loved working within the studio. Um, I, yeah, it was just an amazing band. And they have sustained, you know, a career. At one time, you know, I think people, it was, it was considered to be a little bit uncool to, uh, to be a huge fan of Duran, but they have just stuck with it. They have stayed. They've had different incarnations, as you know. They've kind of split off and done different things. Yeah. Um, but, um, as a band, yeah, and they're still going and still sounding incredible. Yeah. Yeah. They're amazing. Yeah. Cause, uh, Notorious was really good. And after that, they kind of, like you mentioned, they had kind of a downturn until the wedding album, which I, th- I think blew everyone's mind. It's, 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 different sound, um, you know, ordinary world. And you were featured on Come Undone and you got your, you know, you're doing the video. <laughs> well, no, I wasn't in the video. That wasn't you in, in, underwater? Shame. I know I would have loved to have been that mermaid. What yeah. I wouldn't have given. Oh, I'm sorry. Mermaid. So, but she wasn't my, I don't think she was singing in the video. I don't know. I have to go back and check that. But I, yeah, she was, she was gorgeous. She was a, a mermaid. Oh. Um, so yes, yeah, so, so that was sadly another time where I didn't get to oh, splash I apologize. Uh, no, 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 no. It's quite all right. But I, that has been, I think it was top 10, the record in the States. Yeah. And that's been a great one for me. Lots of people have been very kind and said, you know, very nice things about my performance on that. And it was great to have a, uh, a little step out role, if you like.
and and it's quite featured uh, in that yeah. song, so I was very lucky, very very lucky, and I love hearing it to this day. Well, it's, yeah, it's one of my favorite songs, and, and it's, there's a bunch of videos of it on YouTube, performance in there. It's, it's great, yeah. Yeah, but, thank you, thank yeah. you. I also loved Ordinary World. I didn't sing on it, but I just thought that was a magnificent single, and it really kind of brought them back. It did, yeah. yeah. Did you, you you tour with them too, right? I did. We did some crazy gigs. I remember we opened the Hard Rock Hotel. Okay. In Vegas. Oh yeah, that was. And that was. <laughs> I mean, they yeah. really are the ultimate party band. Right. So they were just so much fun. Um. Too much fun, actually. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Way too much fun. I um. Yeah, they were party central. It was. I, I had a ball with them. It was great. No, but that's great. Yeah. But you know, some of the stories obviously are featured in backtracks. I don't want to. You know, yeah, I want people to read the books. I don't want to have to go through every story here. Thank it's, you, it's, no, Thank you. <laughs> yeah. But my my all time favorite band is Tears for Fears, and um. They, they're like a kind of a mysterious band, you know, they're not the traditional band where they have to put up album after album, you know, I don't really have, you can't really put them in like a, a class, I don't feel, they weren't really the same pop band, you know, but you worked on probably one of the most toughest albums for them, um, Seeds of Love, following, you know, uh, Songs of the Big Chair, and was their last album for quite some time together. Did you kind of sense the strain between Will and Kurt during that time? I knew there was a strain between them because um, largely the work that I did on the album was with Roland. Right. So Kurt wasn't really around that much. Um, and, and I knew, yeah, I knew that, that, that times were not easy for them. Um, but again, you know, they've managed to ride that storm. Yeah. Uh, like so many bands have, they're kind of better off together than apart. Yeah. I understand the, the notion of wanting to do things separately and, you know, you, you, you almost grow up with these people and, you know, you think, well, what is it, what is it going to be like kind of doing some solo stuff? And then you realize, hmm, maybe not as good as, as when we're together, but I adored working for them. Absolutely adored it. And I recently had um, spent some time with Chris Hughes who produced oh, oh. the album and uh, he was telling me some lovely stories attached to it. But it was and it was it was risky for them, too, because they brought in Alita Adams, which was a genius. It was. Yeah. Uh, who knew that? I mean, that story about Alita <laughs> being a singer in a nightclub and then them absolutely falling in love with her uh, when they, they were just on tour and they saw yeah. her performing in a bar. Right. And they said to her, next time we go on tour, you're coming with. And she was like, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Sure. That's going to happen. You know, and then like two or three years later, yeah. they took her on tour. And, and so the album was really, um, it's so interesting how they developed and evolved from that kind of eighties electronica yeah. sound, which I was never a huge fan of. I've got to be honest, those right. really, really early ones that they had, didn't really kind of do it for me but then when they started to think you know had things like everybody wants to rule the world and mad world i i was like oh okay all right these guys are serious and then as soon as i began working with them i just they're extraordinary yeah yeah because you're you're featured on year of the night
Yeah, which is yes. a great song. And yeah. Then a favorite track of mine on there is a track called Swords and Knives. Swords and Knives, yeah. Which is also very kind of strange, yeah. experimental, but beautiful. I love it. Love it. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if was also on Woman in Chains. That was, that was featured Olita heavily in that song, which is fantastic. Oh. Yeah. That that song. That was oh, great. Yes, I watch. I I have a Facebook page and I posted that video mm-hmm. the other day and I just kept watching it. I just couldn't believe how it was so powerful. I'm surprised you know some of these women's groups haven't picked it up and used it as an anthem because it's so anthemic. Yeah. I remember the first time I saw them was was in New York, and the concert opens with just a piano on stage, and Alita came out and she sang their song "I Believe," and it was like, whoa! She was like unbelievable and just like uh, amazing. You know, you worked you worked with her too a little bit. I did, I did, I did, and I love that album so much. I mean, I I still think to this day it probably hasn't had the success that really it warranted because it's just a beautiful piece of work. And I think the cleverness of it lay um, with Alita, essentially a gospel American artist. And then Roland, this Brit kind of hybrid, you know, coming in and producing her was a stroke of genius because it took Alita down a path that was very different. You know, it wasn't the typical kind of black gospel route that she would perhaps have gone down with a, with a, with an American artist, uh, a producer. Yeah, because it was a rhythm of life. I think the song they produced. Mm. Yeah, it was, just, it was so good. Yeah. So I, I I had her on my show a couple of years ago, and she was. She's isn't she? Yeah, I was so happy, but she she was great. Did you tour with them too a little bit or no? Or you just work on the album. I never did. Oh, and it's oh. funny, that actually goes back to the question. I think I couldn't tour with Tears of Fears because I was committed probably with Clapton at the time. Um, but I would have loved to have gone on tour with yeah. him. Right. Yeah. yeah. And you mentioned, yeah, Eric, um, what was, like, how, how did that come about and, like, your first experience meeting him? I met him, I was introduced to him by my long-time singing partner, a lady called Katie Kasum. And um, she had done a tour with Eric and Roger Walters from Pink Floyd. Right. And so she knew Eric. And Eric called her up and said, look, we're doing some recording. Um, Phil Collins producing. Um, Do you know any other singers? And thankfully, she picked me. So eternally grateful to Katie Kasum for... uh, for passing that on. And that was really a very important relationship. So um, met Eric, got on great, worked on the album. I think the album was August. I think it was called August. Um, and yeah, and then got a call sort of a couple of months later after release saying, um, actually we did a, a TV show here that was very famous um, for years, decades here called Top of the Pops. Right. God, that's an, that really ages it, doesn't it? Calling it yeah. Top of the Pops. Well, um, and uh, so we did a Top of the Pops performance. And then then it was like, OK, do you fancy going on the road? We're going to tour this beast of an album. And, uh, and that was the start of a very long, fruitful, wonderful relationship with Clapton. Right. Uh, when you were on Top of the Pops, did you have to do lip sync? Or were you actually singing on that? <laughs> yeah, we were lip syncing. Yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And some of the boss was all about lip syncing. Right, yeah. <laughs> Very few artists ever performed live. Yeah. 
Right. And then I know this is going to be a difficult, but uh, when you guys are touring in the States, unfortunately, the tra- tragic passing of Stevie Ray Vaughan, and that was that, that was rough. I remember that day. Um, and he was a fantastic artist, too. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. That had to be difficult to continue that tour. Really hard. Really hard. And I, if I'm very honest, I didn't think that it was a good idea to carry on touring. I think we were all so grief stricken because not only did we lose Stevie, but we also lost two members of our entourage, um, um, Eric's bodyguard, uh, Nigel, Nigel Green and um, Colin, who was part of the um, part of the, the kind of backstage crew. Um, he was very much kind of he was always around. He was he was very, very present. Um, and so we were we were grieving. It was it was awful. But then it did come to the point. Well, if Eric wants to continue, you know, we're his band. He's, he's not going to do it without us. And, um, and and it was the right thing to do, because I think music is such a healing process. Um, and Eric has used, you know, music many, many times in his life to heal from various things that he's been through. And he has been through an awful lot. So it was the right thing to do to carry on, um, to carry on working as hard as it was. It was really hard. Right. I know this is a weird kind of thing to say, but like his uh, healing, his turmoil kind of brought out joy in people listening to his music. You know, Tears in Heaven It was, you know, I mean, unbelievable song. It's he's one of the most relatable artists, I think, because yeah. it really does some of his best work when he's processing um, pain and, and, and uh, you know, a, a lot of artists are the same. I, I know that they use their difficult experiences to, you know, to fuel their, their their music and their inspiration. And in that case, wow, yes, I remember the first time I heard Tears in Heaven and, you know. Yeah. What was the last year that you toured with him? I don't think now. Um must have been i'm trying to think uh my daughters were born in 1998 so i think possibly around i think like 2000 perhaps okay was about the last time right yeah yeah okay has he asked you since or no he hasn't no in fact it's interesting because um i i also think that things have their time everything right. has their time and I, I would love to be asked, I guess, but I also think it probably wouldn't happen. I, I don't know. I just, I just think um, sometimes, as I say, things happen yeah. at the time. They have, they have their own time, their own life. Having said that, though, my <laughs> lovely friend Katie Kassoon recently uh, has been back on the road with him okay. because he had two singers after Katie and I, Shah and Michelle, and Michelle left to pursue a solo career, and Katie jumped in okay. uh, Michelle's spot. So it's now a Shah and Katie doing the doing the show. Right. And I'm sure she's absolutely amazing. I'm sure the fans are thrilled that she's back. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. 
It's also being at the right place at the right time. It's all that opportunity. Very true. Very yeah. true. And, and to be honest, I think in a way, um, I'm I'm doing other things now. Right. So, for instance, I'm broadcasting a lot more. Um, I do a radio spot. Um, I wrote a book. And so in a way, my career has, yeah, you know, changed, changed direction. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know how I'd feel about sort of packing my bag and going on the road now at the grand age that I am. <laughs> I kind of like being at home. <laughs> Not yeah. in this situation, but yeah. No, of course. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, you mentioned that was kind of like a sticking point in, in your life, uh, touring, affecting your personal life. But I'll leave that to the book because everyone reads the book. It's, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, a couple of artists at uh, Skate Club. And I had uh, Trevor Steele on, and you did um, Wild Wild West. Which I find that fascinating because they hit number one in the States, but they never charted in England with with that song, which I never understood that. (laughs) I I don't know if you ask people in the UK who the Escape Club are that they would really know. Right. Because as you say, for for the reason um, they they didn't have a number one hit. It's interesting, isn't it? Sometimes bands can have massive success in the US and not here. And, 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 you know, vice versa. I mean, remember Bush, that band Bush. Nobody knew who they were here. Okay. And, and they were, were a British band, they, I think. They were huge here, yeah, for a couple of yeah. years. Yeah. 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 So it's well, funny how it, what takes sometimes in certain territories doesn't take in others. But. Yeah. Yeah, because that song was great here. I really, really enjoyed it. I had Trevor on also a, a couple couple years ago. And oh, I yeah. Think, yeah. I, I, the I think U.S. Back, or the UK? Uh, U.S., I think. I think he's in California now. But, yeah, I think right. he's um, – yeah, he kind of, I don't know if he's just uh, Escape Club by himself now, but he's kind of doing those 80 tour, 80s tours now. 
So, yes, as is another yeah. band um, with a guy that I know, a band called Boys Don't Cry. Oh, Nick Richards, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So they, they do that. Nick's yeah. based in California. Did, have you spoken to Nick? I, I had Nick on. Nick, oh, he, he had some great yeah. stories. He's, he's a guy, guy yeah. isn't he? Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. he, yeah. he told a lot of stories about the Mijan Roos studio. Exactly. That, exactly. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. He, he was the owner of that yeah. really successful studio that had so many, including Duran, kind of yeah. recording there. Yeah. 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 And then one artist that wasn't mentioned in the book was also one of my all-time favorites was Howard Jones. And you, oh. yeah, in, in the running album, yeah, which was like kind of in the early nineties, yeah. And he's the the terrible thing and the wonderful thing mm-hmm. is that I now have to Google myself. <laughs> you remember who I worked with. Right, yeah. That's funny. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it, largely, I think, because just you know, I was fortunate enough to, you know, do such a, a large body of work over time. There are some artists that, you know, even in the book, sometimes I, I, I remember things like, oh, I should have written that in the book. Didn't I, I left them out. Right. But Howard actually is, is one of those. And, yeah, he wouldn't thank me for that. But not because <laughs> he wasn't extraordinary and I didn't love working with him yeah. but just because you know the old memory is probably probably going a bit <laughs> yeah. but thank you for reminding me yeah Art- yeah and, and he's a great artist and again does quite a lot of those kind of rewind yeah uh, tours now yeah yeah I've, I've also had him on and um he um also does like these kind of story and acoustic you know they'll tell a story leading into the song acoustic love that love yeah. that I think people love to know the backstory Agreed. of yeah of things, yeah. Right. Do you think about writing another book with all the stories that you want to tell? I think I've got a bit more living to do before. <laughs> before you know, it was so jam-packed full of wonderful stories um, that, yeah, you know, life seems a little bit slower in comparison to those days. Yeah. You know. um, but I would like to to, to do perhaps an, an addition, you know, to add on and and because um, and I love the experience of writing. But what I have written is a um, interesting. We're talking about the backstory to things. I've written a live show with another singer friend of mine, my partner uh, in this venture. Her name is Gina Foster. Uh, and she's had a similar career to myself as a session singer. And we've written a a show. I'm just looking at the poster of it here. I'll send oh, wow. you. It's called Unsung Singers, The Brits Behind the Hits. Okay. So we, it's basically a live show where we sing a lot of the music that we recorded and we tell the stories about being in the studio with Clapton and recording the pieces of work. And we, there's lots of humor in it, but lots of stories about the artists that we've worked with. And I absolutely love doing it. I'd love to bring it to the States. Oh, oh yeah, please. please. That'd be awesome. Or, or, or at least you, you record it. Out, let me bring us over. Just yeah. let, let me know when all this madness is over. We're, we're, we're there. Uh, absolutely. But um, Tessa, this was great. I need to have you on again. Is it so much I want to, you know, discuss with you? Um, everyone, go check out Backtrack. It's on Amazon. You can get the Kindle. I recommend the audiobook because it's great. She has amazing audio, you know, book boys. Uh, thank you so much and uh, good luck. My absolute pleasure, Noel. Thank you for reaching out and, and asking me. I'm, I'm honored. <laughs> Thank you. 
And a special thanks to Tessa for joining me today. Go check out her book, Backtrack. It's everywhere you can find a book. It, the audio version is great because she has such a great voice, like I said, in the open. Check it out. Some great stories that we didn't even touch upon during this interview. Like I said, we can talk for hours with her. If you want to follow her on Twitter, she's at Tessa Niles. One, the number one. And if you have a guest suggestion, you can hit me up on Twitter at the first note one nine, or like the page of Living My Youth on Facebook. Go to iTunes, check out all the past episodes we've had. While you're there, please rate and review the show. Don't have iTunes, not a problem. It shows on SoundCloud, it's also on Podbean. A new episode comes out every Wednesday, sometimes Thursday, like this week. And we'll see you next week.